Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Vengeance was uh, often sought, and uh, sometimes with you using it in a legalistic way, and sometimes just playing arbitrarily, where the people go in there and say, "Ah, oh, I didn't like what you did," and you'd take their life. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Lou Norton discussing justice in the American Revolution, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton, available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Lou Norton, and he'll be talking about what it meant to be just and how the American public felt about the concept of justice in the American Revolution. One of the things you're going to find in Lou's article, as well as the interview, is that Lou talks about, analyzes, different peoples who would all be Americans in the 18th century. Some are British, some are American loyalists, some are American patriots, and some are American Indians. And all of them will be executed for their politics, uh, in really the simplest way to say it. Lou analyzes why this happened and how the public responded to it. It's an interesting conversation. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Lou Norton. Lou Norton, thank you for joining us. Good to be with you. Tell us about your background. Well, uh, I'm kind of an oddball group and uh, oddball member of this group in that I my background actually is I'm a dentist, but a peculiar one. Um, I have uh, I've been an academic dentist at the University Health Center. My background I have an undergraduate degree and a bachelor's degree from Bowdoin College up in Maine, where I took a lot of scientific work. Then I went on and uh, did my dental. Tr- uh, training as a DMD and at Harvard in the, in the dental school there, which is part of the medical school, and uh, did residency at Boston Children's Hospital, did my service in the Army, and then started a career in academics, and I made full professor at the University of Kentucky, then left and came home because I'm a New Englander at, at the University of Connecticut, and as also as a full professor, and retired. Oh, roughly 20 years ago, but sort of stayed on the faculty about half time. And during that time in academics, I published a great deal in the scientific literature. But then I decided to take up uh, something which interests me a great deal, and that was uh, history. I grew up in Gloucester, Massachusetts, Cape Ann, uh, the perfect storm and captains courageous and all that stuff. <laughs> and uh very much interested in the sea, so my my uh, focus has been maritime history, and uh, because the University uh, of Connecticut had sort of a relationship with Mystic Seaport, 
it, uh, I was able to do graduate work and uh, also uh, have a relationship with Mystic Seaport. So a lot of the things which I've published uh, have a, uh, a maritime uh, relationship if you look at the things that I published in the JAR. So that is sort of my background. I've been at this uh, roughly since about uh, the year 2000, started my uh, my uh, writings in that area, and it's been quite extensive. I've got the order of magnitude of over 200 publications, and the his- with largely with history, some of it with fiction, but almost all with with historical uh, focus. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, uh, it turns out that the last book I wrote, which I really didn't write, I edited, um, was something called Sailing Under John Paul Jones. And doing some research for one of the uh, papers or books I was working on, I came across a memoir written by somebody from Connecticut, from Stonington, Connecticut. It happens to be uh, right next to Mystic Seaport. And uh, it was a fellow that had sailed with John Paul Jones during the Revolutionary War. And uh, he started off as a privateer. Then uh, he was captured, escaped from England. They got into France, met with uh, Benjamin Franklin, and John Paul Jones was there. And he's looking for crewmen, so he hired him as uh, a midshipman, actually. And uh, then he... uh, Later, he didn't particularly get on with John Paul Jones, and, he, and then he left when he could and got to France where he was and became, ultimately became an officer in the French Navy because they were our allies. Now, that's a lot of stuff, but it turns out that the last third of the book, since you see three distinct areas, one is a privateer, one sailing with John Paul Jones, the other one is working with the French, he became... A, uh, a sort of a spy for them and uh, went to England because he spoke the language real well and uh, what have you and talked about um, executions which were going on and uh, he had uh, described them in some detail and things which I'd never ever thought about at the time so uh, this kind of intrigued me and I set me off into uh, looking at what executions were like and why they did them and uh, who who was executed, etc. So that was a very long answer to a short question. What got me interested, and that was the uh, sailing under John Paul Jones, the story of Nathaniel Fanning, and that was uh, published just before the pandemic hit us uh, by McFarland up in uh, North Carolina. But because of that, we haven't been able to uh, push the book very much. But anyway, it's gotten a lot of very good reviews. It was actually reviewed in the GAR, as I recall. How was justice defined in the 18th century British world? Well, um, you've got to remember first that uh, uh, you also have to look at, at North America. We were all British at the time. So um, the courts would uh, use capital punishment far more frequently than we, we do now. And... Uh, it was largely, uh, what can I say, uh, it didn't really go look into the justice system too much, but uh, people went on trial just as we do now, and it was a very, very uh, formal uh, thing. One of the things which is interesting is that, uh, remember, we were still 
part of the British system here. But since we're away from that, they did have the Admiralty Court for um, uh, maritime things. But uh, the, the the colonies kind of did their own thing, but using the general, uh, we'll say, uh, way they did it back in the homeland and under and, and, uh, George III, etc., the the traditional way. And uh, but certainly uh, a lot of crimes historically led to capital punishment, things which we wouldn't think of as being uh, uh, leading to capital punishment today. But in those days, uh, you either they had that, they would confine you, they would flog you, etc. Uh, so things were different at that time. What was the primary means of execution during this time? And was this true across all of Europe? Uh, yeah, uh, the... The, the cheapest way of doing it, actually, uh, you take some rope and you hang somebody. In essence, uh, hanging was very prevalent, and that was the way for capital punishment. Uh, the, the the way they did it was really a couple of ways. Um, one is the uh, uh, simply uh, putting them on a horseback and hitting the horse, and the person dropped off the horse and. That would constitute hanging or lynching them on a tree, or the most prevalent way was being on a platform, and the platform would give way underneath, and the person would drop, and that would uh, break their their neck. And it was very formal in that the hangman's noose had to have 13 turns on it, again, superstition, to damn the person to hell and all that good stuff. Uh, There was a really peculiar way of doing it in uh, some countries such as in France and in, in Germany we would have something somebody called Jack Ketch and what this was all about was that if the person dropped a significant amount it would fracture the neck and obviously they would die and that was good but sometimes it didn't work so good so they would actually hire somebody after the the uh, thing was done, a person would literally jump on the person with the, the rope around his neck, and the, the added weight would essentially uh, <clears throat> break the person's neck, and that would uh, end the person's life. And people would actually bid on this, because hangings were uh, entertainment. <laughs> Uh, people, great crowds of hundreds of people uh, would gather around to, to watch these. This, they would say, yes, we're going to have an execution on Saturday morning, and everybody come and have a picnic and what have you. Uh, very, very ghoulish, but back in the day, that was uh, the way it worked, but, um, particularly in England. And some of the methods were absolutely uh, horrendous. Uh, just to give you uh, the, the worst one that I, I ran across and from that, again, from Fanning's writings, was that they for semen, they didn't particularly they, uh, had a thing about a person being a pirate. And what they would do is they'd have a scaffolding out uh, just off offshore, and they would send this barge out, essentially a little, little float, and put the person's uh, neck in the noose, and the float would be out there, and then they would do this at high tide. And when the tide went out, Obviously, the rope got tighter and tighter and tighter until the person very slowly uh, was 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 killed by that. And then they would leave them there for a number of days, and the seabirds would would uh, have feast on the body. So it was just just gruesome type things which they were doing in those days. So, so, so sorry to make these terrible pictures, but uh, that's one of the things which uh, <clears throat> I sort of uh, ran across and and doing doing. 
research for this article. Talk about Chief Cornstalk. Well, Cornstalk was a fascinating fellow. Uh, he was obviously, as the article says, he was an Indian, uh, Shawnee Indian, and Cornstalk tried very hard to. Uh, uh, join this essentially with the uh, the Americans, the colonialists who were rebelling. Uh, he was against the British. The British were driving the Shawnees away, and he wanted to uh, be uh, an ally with them. But unfortunately, um, he the he was very very well respected in the Shawnee Nation and the other uh, allied nations there. And when he went to offer his assistance. They said, ah, I think we're going to uh, keep you in our fort. And this way, if uh, anything happens, uh, they, know, they know we have, have you, and <clears throat> you should uh, be known as our ally. But what happened was he, uh, as the article states, uh, so, some people had, uh, Indians had, had killed a, 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 uh, one of the soldiers, and Therefore, the soldiers in the fort wanted to take revenge. And one of the things which I talk about in the opening paragraph of the article was that revenge was uh, a very much a part of justice, as they say, uh, in those days. So uh, some of the men decided to kill uh, Cornstalk, and uh, Cornstalk was summarily executed. And uh, then later they decided that this was a terrible thing because he was under our protection. Why did you do this? They wanted to uh, take revenge on the people that killed him, but they never did. Uh, nobody would point at the finger at who was, who was guilty, so they got off. But one of the things which is interesting about Comstock is, and there's a, a legend about him, uh, I'm sure nobody took these notes, but it, it is said that uh, he, he made the following quote. Uh, I was the borderman's friend. Many times I have saved him and his people from harm. I never warred with him, and only to protect our wigwams and lands. I refused to join your pale-faced enemies with the redcoats. I came to the fort as your friend, and you murdered me. Oh, you're about to murder me. That was the quote they have. Uh, you have murdered by my side my young son. For this, may the curse of the great spirit rest upon this land. May it be blighted by nature. May it even blight in its hopes. May the strength of its people be paralyzed by the stain of our blood. Now, I don't think anybody actually wrote this, but there's a legend in the area in West Virginia where he was died, where he was killed. They, after that, they had all sorts of bad things happening, so they attributed it to our friend, Mr. Cormstock, who, who had met his demise uh, unceremoniously and um, through no fault of his own. So that's kind of an interesting aside to the... the, the uh, Indian who actually they have a statue of him, a very 12, it's a 12 foot statue uh, at the site uh, roughly where he was uh, killed. Who was Francis Henry de Lamont? Well, de Lamont was uh, the, uh, an English, pardon me, a Frenchman who uh, was spying on 
the uh, the British telling where uh, largely where again maritime where shipping was and all that uh, toward the end of the war uh, when we were uh, we and the uh, French were allied and uh, <clears throat> he was um, tried and uh, as the story went in the article I wrote he was. Uh, about to be executed and drawn and quartered, and they were really upset with the man. That never really happened, but he was uh, at least killed, and then they burned the body at the stake, as the again the article said. One thing that's interesting is that um, it, it happened about the Charles of uh, about the time of Charles Dickens and Thackeray later uh, picked up the story because it became quite no, well known and. Uh, in the, if you look at the Dickens uh, Tale of Two Cities, Charles Darnay is uh, really the uh, the, char- the character of Charles Darnay was sort of based upon this De Lamont's life, and Thackeray also did a similar one uh, later, uh, as, as uh, he portrayed him as a tortured figure, demonic figure, etc. So therefore, in the literature. Uh, his his executions um, uh, was sort of immortalized through the, through the literature uh, as a basis for two well-known characters. If you could tell us about Claudius Smith. Yeah, um, Claudius Smith was. Uh, we always have to remember that. Uh, unfortunately, very much like like today, the the nation is divided. And at the time, the nation was divided. I'm pretty much in it like today. There are the the Tories and the Patriots, and about a third, and a third, third, third. The people that go, go either way, whichever way things went, they would go the independent, so to speak. And it turns out that Claudius Smith was a Tory uh, in an area which they had a lot of loyal. Uh, he was a, a, a loyalist in an area where they had a lot of the rebels. And he was uh, he and his band of men, and his sons actually um, went around and and harassed the uh, the the, rebel, the the rebels. So they represented the the Tories, and ultimately uh, uh, he was killed. But he was a, sort of a Robin Hood character in the area. He would look after the Tories to make sure that they were not being. Uh, unduly put upon and he had great respect by the, the people who were who wanted to really remain loyal to the king but uh as again the article pointed out uh the people were upset with him and they uh what killed him and his sons and one one escaped pretty much uh right through the revolutionary war but three others were also executed in time so smith was uh uh, <clears throat> somewhat interesting character. William Crawford's death is especially terrible. Can you tell that story? Well, Crawford uh, was sort of the the um, what can I say the, the great patriot. He he served in many many uh, ways. Uh, with uh, in the uh, in the Continental Army, etc., had a number of commands. It was quite successful in these commands, but 
his life went on and on and on. But then, then it turned out that there was a massacre and uh, something called a Goodnut Houghton Massacre. I hope I, I'm pronouncing it right. My German is not as good as it used to be way back in my college days. <clears throat> and this massacre was of, of interest. Um, it was a massacre of a Moravian group that uh, there were pacifists that uh, in Pennsylvania, um, and they did not want to join either side. They did not want to fight. And uh, among the, the uh, at one point, uh, a Patriot band went to see if, went, wanted to recruit them, and they refused, and they thought that these pacifists were probably uh, not, uh, not worth saving. So they rounded them up. Uh, I believe they were, it was 96 of them, it says, pacifists, and uh, massacred them. And this was in uh, Ohio County. And uh, this village, word got out of this terrible thing that the uh, uh, <clears throat> people did, the, uh, the revolutionaries, and the Indians got word of this, and uh, their sense of morality was offended. <laughs> so when they had a chance to uh, capture uh, our, our friend Crawford, uh, they, they, he was part of this this gang, and they massacred him and a, a lot of the uh, uh, Continental Army soldiers that he had. And they particularly, the Indians were particularly gruesome in the way that they killed him. Um, they burned him at a stake, but it's far worse than that. I Spent a lot of time talking about terrible ways that they killed him, and his his was probably one of the one of the worst ones. And no no sense uh, going into the de details, other than uh, they they went to great depth of cruelty to to uh, take care of him and his his followers. And it was one of the last uh, people to die, uh, or next to last person to die in of an execution. But again, it was vengeance, and uh, you see something happening, and you're so upset about the whatever the group that is in command, and they they wreak vengeance upon these people. So uh, his his was uh, say one of the ones which, <laughs> in doing research about uh, <clears throat> in this area, that you, you said did a little bit of uh, difficulty. These events can seem disconnected. How did you analyze them as evidence of one theme? Well, I set out to uh, find out uh, what the literature had as best I could, the number of people that were executed, uh, not by, we'll say, military uh, tribunals, for you know, a deserter or something like this, but sort of ordinary people <clears throat> uh, or, or from their battles, etc., and see if I could uh, list them all. These were all the ones that I could find. I'm sure that somebody will come up with a, 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 another one which was missing from the list, but it's a fairly formidable list. I think there are 14, plus you've got some brothers and sisters, uh, and, uh, brothers at least, that I, I mentioned there. So uh, that was a fair number of people that were executed by a trial. And again, the formal trial was... Sometimes a formal trial before a judge, and in the case of the Indians, it's just a matter of the tribal 
leaders doing this. But that is uh, how I tried to uh, put put this theme together. Uh, and then uh, at the, both the beginning and at the end, analyze the what I consider the the problems which we have: uh, the execution of soldiers, the spies put to death. Uh, it's sort of a macabre tale, and it's sort of a moral curse on mankind because we're always seeking revenge. And uh, it, it happened way back 250 years ago, and we're still doing it today, if you look at the headlines. Yes, the way, means of executions are different. They don't use the rope as much, but uh, the result is the same. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, I think that the um, we tend to look at the revolutionary era and in the articles I've written before, look at people, certain people who are heroic or in any events uh, such as a battle. We talked about John Paul Jones earlier, and he will give you that an example, his in the Serapis incident, etc. But I thought it would be kind of interesting to say, gee, uh, these were people that lived uh, under the rule of law as they knew it, and uh, how did they work is, is was a revolutionary era any different than it was today and the answer is to a degree yes but unfortunately uh, it also uh, re- reflected a lot of the we'll say the weaknesses that we have today uh, we people were executed for treachery and betrayal and perfidy uh, Vengeance was uh, often sought, and uh, sometimes with you using it in a legalistic way, and sometimes just playing arbitrarily, where the people go in there and say, "Ah, oh, I didn't like what you did," and you'd take their life. And sometimes it was done in a very systematic way, where uh, documents were gotten together, such as it happened in England with the uh, the, the Frenchman's demise. But sometimes it was just spontaneous. People were very upset, such as the the Comstock uh, death, which we talked about before. People were so upset with one person dying that they made, came in and massacred this guy who was there. <clears throat> Essentially, they were supposed to uh, be um, taken care of in their fort. So uh, it, it uh, I think, puts the Revolutionary War... Uh, in a certain perspective that, yes, it was different, but is not so different than it is today. It's just a matter of the, the degree that we have. Lou Norton, thanks again. Well, thank you. It's been great visiting with you, and I, I hope uh, I've answered your, your, your queries reasonably well. I look forward to um, maybe doing it again in the future. Bye-bye. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>